Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about The Portrait by Nikolai Gogol, which was originally published in 1835 and then reworked and republished in 1842. I'm fairly certain we're reading the uh, expanded kind of complete version of this story. We'll be talking about it in two episodes, a recap episode and a discussion episode. Uh, so make sure to stick around for both. And we are reading this in the translation by Richard Pavir and Larissa Volk. Konsky, uh, this was published in 1998. These two people, they're a couple. Um, they've done an enormous number of translations of Russian literature, uh, some to great esteem, some to some critical attention. Uh, but like all translations, your, your mileage may vary. Yeah, I really enjoyed this translation, though. And also, that sounds like a great gig. Like, how do I get that for me and Elizabeth? <laughs> that sounds pretty awesome. Well, we should say, too, that this is a story that was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters. And we're always grateful to have nominations, especially things that get us to uh, read stories that we wouldn't otherwise uh, have thought about covering. This is definitely one of them. But this was nominated by a Patreon supporter because this is the prize that we gave out, or one of the prizes anyway, that we gave out from the review writing contest that we had many, many months ago. The top prize, the grand prize for that was a free commissioned episode, which we did give away to somebody. Uh, not used on Elder Sign, though. This was actually used on Lower Decks, our Star Trek show, though not for a Star Trek episode. It was actually uh, used to get Valerie and I to talk about an episode of Babylon 5. Uh, it's the one with Brad Dourif, and it was a great episode. That was super fun. I highly encourage people to, uh, even if you're not a Star Trek fan, to, to pop over to Lower Decks and check that that out. The uh, other nomination prize, we gave out two of these. The other nomination prize was a Dan Simmons story, and that's going to be coming up in a few months. Very, very excited to be reading that story as well. Brandon and I, are we're, we're, we're both pretty big Dan Simmons fans, or at least have been in the, the past. But uh, uh, also just want to make sure that we, we thank everyone who participated in that contest by writing reviews for us. Reviews are a huge way that we find new listeners, and finding new listeners is how we stay on the air. And, and of course, I should remind people as well that we do still have this other element of that contest uh, open and active, which is that we are going to do five or six episodes on the classic H.P. Lovecraft masterpiece, The Call of Cthulhu, when we reach 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. We aren't there yet. We need about 80 to go. But uh, if you have any interest in hearing us talk about The Call of Cthulhu as a bonus series that will be available to everyone, and you have not written a review, please go do that, because that'll get us to do it and well, I haven't read that story in too long, and I would love to. <laughs> yeah, I would too. If you're if you're listening to us right now and you haven't rated us and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, uh, please consider doing so. Take 10 minutes out of your day. As Glenn said, it really helps us out. I want to also thank everybody who's reviewed us so far. It's a big deal to us. It does keep the lights on at, at Clay Temple Media. But yeah, a rating and a review would would go a long way to help us to continue to put out this content and uh, find new listeners and make shows about stuff that we all love. It's what we want to do. Let's turn now to the portrait. This is a beautiful novella. It's a really good story. It's been a long time since I've read any Russian literature. I think I reread Brothers Karamazov about, about two years ago and loved that again. Um, and I just 
was reminded of reading this how much I love 19th century <laughs> Russian literature. Uh, though I've done no like real homework or research on it. This is this story is caught up with a lot of the broader sort of philosophical and artistic concerns uh, that dominated social discourse, high society, I don't know, the salon, the drawing room, the conversation in the 19th century. What's the role of the artist in society? You know, what is art for? Who is it for? Uh, but why we're doing it here is, hey, there's a haunted painting. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's got that weird element as well, which we will also talk about uh, when we get to our discussion. But I just can't wait to talk about this story. So Glenn, let's just get right to it. Right. As you said, Brandon, this is a novella. It's a quite a big story, in fact. And it is in two parts. Each of these parts has a different narrative perspective, but each of them is about the story's subject, which is to say the portrait, the name of the story. And of course, as you said as well, Brandon, it's a haunted portrait at that. Something we've encountered before. And uh, I don't know that, that I'm sure that will come up some points of comparison between uh, this and, and Edith Nesbitt and some of the other haunted artifact stories that we have done. But part one of of the portrait begins at an art shop in the Shukin Market in St. Petersburg. Our protagonist is a young artist named Chartkov, and he happens to be passing by, and he, he finds himself drawn to the shop and uh, also really to the, the crowd of people who are browsing there. Chartkov is a real artist, a serious artist. He's someone who doesn't have time to care about his appearance. He's someone who looks down on commercial artists as mere craftsmen. And he's someone who also doesn't have a lot of money. And this is going to become a major plot point in, in just a few scenes. And ordinarily, Chartkov just blows by the shop when he's in the market because it does just sell commercial garbage. But today, he finds himself inexplicably drawn to the, the shop or the crowd. It's not really clear which. But the art on display is, is not good, but it is actually better than usual. And today, the shopkeeper is displaying a bunch of Flemish pastoral scenes that are, you know, they're all right, is, is what he thinks of them. <laughs> and the shop, by the way, should be clear, is not the gallery of contemporary artists. It's, it's more of a used art shop. The owner buys art at garage sales, basically, and then sells them here at his uh, his front in the, the market for a profit. But today, Chartkov gets lost in his own thoughts while he's in the shop. And when he comes out of that, the shopkeeper is trying to make a hard sale. And Chartkov does feel like he should buy something because he's he's been in the shop for such a long time, uh, but he really doesn't want anything that he's looked at. So he looks around some more. This is something I definitely relate to. I have been in this position uh, more <laughs> times than uh, than I would like to have been. And obviously, right, he is going to find the portrait. But before we get that, let's pause and, and, and talk about Gogol's style here, because, you know, it is 19th century literature, so only about 10% of the words are spent on the plot of the stories. There's a, a lot of a really great characterization going on here in this extended opening that, that I really loved. Yeah, what I love about 19th century literature is that the stories are by and large, are by and large stories of place. The setting is important. Culture is important. The people that make a place are really important. And this is a, also a hallmark of realism, which was an artistic and literary movement of the 19th century that really strove to depict life as it was. So the story opens with a real focus on this scene in front of the art shop as it might have been painted, as a depiction of life as it is. It's not 
maybe necessarily representing some other thing. And and as I talk about representation here, that'll become more clear how that functions as a role in the story, artistic representation. But we're what we're drawn to is who the characters are on the street. What kind of life do they live? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? And it's an attempt really to capture the animating spirit of a moment in time, something I think that we immediately recognize in great art, whether it's literature or drama or paintings. It, it, it feels alive in some way. But the focus here is on the lower classes. And both in Gogol's writing and the description of the art pieces we get here tend to push this focus on the lower classes into the territory of naturalism, which maybe focuses more on those who don't have institutional power behind them as subjects of art. And Dickens did this a lot as well. I'm not going to get into the hair-splitting conversation between realism and naturalism. You can kind of toss them in the same bag and, and shake them up and kind of come out with the same results. Uh, but these are the sorts of ideas that and style that Gogol is engaging with. And Tarkov is also thinking about this. He is questioning just who these portraits of Finnish peasants are for. Like, who would buy a clinically accurate portrait of a stressed out peasant uh, that's on display, no matter how well it depicted the hardship of life. And Tarkov then thinks that the craftsmen, he calls it, not an artist, who create these paintings are talentless. And what's worse, that there are prints made of them by some machine. So he thinks it's maybe not even art. And I will not talk about this, and we're not even going to talk about it in the discussion because it's a very small <laughs> uh, part of the story. But if you're really interested in the problem of machines recreating art prints or any type of art, like music or accessibility to art as a process of mechanical reproduction, you should read Walter Benjamin's great essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Uh, that's one always worth returning to. And it's clearly on Gogol's mind here a little bit as well. And we've had this conversation before on the show, right? I mean, this was something we did talk about when we did uh, the the mask, when we did the, the the second King and Yellow story by Robert W. Chambers, and I think we did also talk a little bit about this when we did that Vonnegut story on Patreon too, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, I think I think we did cover that as well. I mean, it comes up a lot. This is a conflict that emerges as the result of massive technological changes in society, and it's on the minds of a lot of people. Just what are is, and this is really taken up by a lot of 19th century writers. To go back to the text here, I want to look at the art dealer here, Glenn, since you said there's a lot of great characterization, and there is. This art dealer is not at all concerned with taste. He's concerned with moving artwork, which is why he puts art in the windows that will catch the eye of the passerby. He's a salesman, and he's a pretty good salesman. He treats Chartkov like the deal is done before Chartkov can have a chance to even find what he wants. I mean, this is not actually a good way to treat people. But if you're a salesman, uh, maybe this is a good technique. I don't know. I'm not advocating <laughs> for it. Yeah, this reminded me of of working in a shop myself. I worked in a bookstore in, in college and something that that always struck me about the bookstore. And I, I loved working at the bookstore, I should say, by the way. I sometimes miss that job. But what struck me about the bookstore was that the management of the bookshop, except for one person, uh, were all retail people. 
they were in the business of selling stuff and it didn't really matter what the stuff was, but all of us underlings, all of the, the clerks and the shelvers and uh, the cafe people and so on, we were all there because we loved books. That was why we wanted to work in a bookstore, but that is not what management was about at all. And, and that's clearly what we see here, uh, though I liked all of my management. I'm not sure that I would like the guy who owns this uh, this art shop here, but uh, uh, let's uh, let's get to the portrait here. And as, as I said, you know, this writing here is just absolutely awesome. It's absolutely beautiful. So I'm just going to read some of it. I'm going to let Gogol describe this portrait himself here. It was an old man with a face the color of bronze, gaunt, high-cheekboned. The features seemed to have been caught in a moment of convulsive movement and bespoke an unnorthern face. Fiery noon was stamped on them. He was draped in a loose Asiatic costume. Damaged and dusty though the portrait was, when he managed to clean the dust off the face, he could see the marks of a lofty artist's work. The portrait, it seemed, was unfinished, but the force of the brush was striking. Most extraordinary of all were the eyes. In them, the artist seemed to have employed all the force of his brush and all his painstaking effort. They simply stared, stared even out of the portrait itself, as if destroying its harmony by their strange aliveness. When he brought the portrait to the door, the eyes stared still more strongly. They produced almost the same impression among the people. A woman who stopped behind him exclaimed, It's staring! It's staring! and backed away. He felt some unpleasant feeling, unaccountable to himself, and put the portrait down. So... That's really creepy. And and this is the moment in the story when you should walk away, right? And just go get a cup of coffee and forget this whole thing. But as we said, the shopkeeper is a high-pressure salesman and he talks Chartkov into buying it and buying it for every last bit of money that Chartkov has, though that turns out not to amount to very much. And on his walk home with the portrait, Chartkov notices the sky as the sun is setting and he wants to paint it. Uh, the tone is just so beautiful. But at the same time, Chartkov also thinks that the sky is irksome, and he curses it. And this is a strange juxtaposition. This is a new feeling for him, and it is ominous. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention just before the description of the painter or the portrait was the way that Chartkov is described as involuntarily stopping at the art store and then again involuntarily staying there. And we get this description about his walk home that he's moving maybe mechanically. And all of this serves to indicate to us that Tarkov is subject to grander forces, perhaps. And there may be an element of fate involved in Tarkov's finding of this portrait, which is really creepy. And since we know that Tarkov is already a grumpy, struggling artist, he's judging people whose work sells while his doesn't, we don't think much of his conflicting attitude towards the sunset at this point. But upon rereading this story, this conflict of attitude that he has is certainly, Glenn, as you put it, ominous. Yeah, this isn't really going to uh, make any sort of specific sense for us until pretty late in the second part of this novella, in fact. And so this is a story that really bears rereading. I mean, it's a, it's a masterpiece of a story, and I think masterpieces often bear rereading. That's maybe one of the <laughs> one of the metrics we use, in fact, at least here at Clay Temple Media. Well, at home, we learn that the landlord and a policeman have been by to collect the rent that Chartkov owes. And of course, right he doesn't have it. And this leads him to think about the course of his life, about the, the choices that he's made and also the choices that he is making currently. 
He does want very much to be a great artist, and his professor at art school told him over and over what an awesome talent he has, if only he could master his impatience. And the dichotomy here is between art that is great and art that is fashionable, and Chartkov has the talent to make great art, but his impatience is the flaw that will tempt him toward the dark side of the fashionable. In particular, great art takes time. And so even if the painting can be sold for money, it is simply not as profitable as mass-producing fashionable art. But he has been patient. He's, He's been painting just to learn. He's been studying. He's been taking his time with his work, even as artists around him with way less talent have been able to make quite a good living by hastily painting mediocre portraits for rich people and that sort of thing. And now Chartkov finds himself wondering who would ever even buy any of his great works, uh, such as, for example, The Love of Psyche that he's been working on for a little while. He's working on this now. Uh, Who would buy this if no one ever knows his name? And what about the rent? And this is all on his mind as he notices the portrait again and begins to really take stock of it. And it is a masterpiece of a painting. The eyes, in particular, stand out. They, They don't seem like they've been painted, right? They seem real. In fact, they are so real that Chartkov is a bit creeped out by it and he decides to go to bed. But from his bed, he can see the portrait bathed in moonlight and the man in the portrait is staring at him. Chartkov gets up, he covers the portrait with a sheet, but then he still cannot sleep. And he discovers that the sheet is gone and the man is staring at him again. And now the man climbs out of the portrait and walks to Chartkov's bed and drops a bag of money. It's a a thousand rubles, which is a a small fortune. And then Chartkov wakes up. I've spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about these series of dreams. On one level, Chartkov is being incepted by the ghost of the painting. I mean, he has a dream that he wakes up from in another dream. And uh, I don't know, maybe he's getting some bad ideas in his head. But I also thought about maybe a more rational explanation of what's going on here. The thousand rubles, as we'll see shortly, are real. And I think it's entirely possible that Charkov has intuitively grasped that the portrait uh, and the frame and everything is maybe heavier than it ought to be. He's someone who regularly handles canvas and frames, and he probably on some level felt that the whole portrait is heavier than it really should have been. And since he's haunted by the eyes of the portrait and is concerned about money, maybe he's dreaming that there's money in this portrait uh, in a literal sense. Like maybe he's thinking he can resell it or something like that, or use it as a, as you know, a way to further his own career. Um, But this is a haunting story, but this really read to me as though, Gogol had built in some work to make it totally rational that somebody who's used to holding canvases and frames and knows the weight intuitively of what that might feel like would feel off if there is, you know, another two pounds of money or three pounds of money or something like that in inside of the frame of the painting. It was really fascinating to me to, to I don't know, it took up too much thought. I'll just put it that way. Um, I want to briefly touch on something that you left out of this section of the recap too, Glenn, which is the presence of Nikita, who is Charkov's model and man of all work. And I'm really troubled by the reliance that Nikita has on Charkov. Like Charkov can only afford this like peasant person and how Nikita just disappears from the text as we 
continue as the story continues. And it's not even something that's discussed in the text of the story. Rather, Nikita just disappears. And it, it just bothers me a lot when I think about what we're going to experience as the character journey that Charkov undergoes. And Charkov is already on a sort of a journey. He is impatient, as you pointed out, Glenn. And it's sort of his defining characteristic. Although in the in the next section, when the policemen show up, he's described as like dealing with them patiently. And I think patient in that sense means he's not ranting and getting himself arrested, not that he's forbearing any sort of real situation. Um, but Tarkov sees no value in suffering for his art. And he's really against the whole starving artist lifestyle. And I want to highlight this here because Tarkov really wants the fame that comes along with being truly great. But he thinks he can get there maybe via a shortcut. And and that's really what the rest of the first half of the portrait is about. Right. I, I mean, you're raising some issues here that we're going to have to take up in the discussion, which is really about agency, about how much of this is what Chartkov wants uh, versus how much of it is what the portrait wants. Because the portrait, hey, you know, it's numinous, it's magic, right? And it is working on him already. I mean, really, this portrait is basically the one ring. Like, it it has yeah. some of the same properties <laughs> as the, the one ring. I mean, it doesn't make you turn invisible and stuff, right? It won't help you conquer uh, the elves. But uh, but it, it, it seems to play on your desires and to intensify desires that you already have. At least that's my sense of it. But Maybe perhaps you'll feel that it is not really quite uh, working that way. That'll be worth taking up. And of course, you have hinted as well that, hey, there's actually some money in this portrait. We're going to get that here in this next section. And we can talk about that as well. But even though this was all a dream, or at least a big chunk of it was, this has stuck with Chartkov. And, and throughout the morning, he finds himself thinking about what he could do with a thousand rubles or, or even just a fraction of that money. Uh, but there is no time for that now because his landlord is there to collect the rent and he has brought with him this policeman that you you were talking about, Brandon. And the, the policeman is actually fairly affable and he, he tries to get the landlord to take payment of the rent in paintings, but the landlord just won't have it. He's, he's angry at Chartkov and he just wants cash. And the policeman looks over some of Chartkov's paintings and he's really quite interested in the portrait that Chartkov bought yesterday. When he picks it up, he cracks the frame and out falls an envelope with a thousand rubles in it. And this is you know, just like in Chartkov's dream. So he's got to use some of this money now to pay the landlord, but that's fine because you know the rent is basically nothing compared to, to what is in this envelope. Uh, and he also gives his notice. He's, he's going to be moving now because you know no one wants to you know live in an apartment with a landlord like this, I guess. And when Chartkov is alone again, he inspects the money. Uh, it's all there, and the gold coins seem new. They're, they're hot as fire, we're told. And, of course, right, he, he wonders where they came from, but old people do like to hide money, and anyway, it's his now, and he can live comfortably for three years on this and just paint without worry, so he's not going to think too hard about it. Uh, some of these details, Brandon, do suggest to me that uh, he would not have noticed a weight differential while carrying it home, because I think the money might not have actually been in there uh, you know, physically when he bought the, the portrait, but we can we can, we can can uh, argue about that in a, in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, but even as Jardkov is setting himself up in his new studio with good supplies and a comfortable life, he can't help but envision himself not as a true artist who's barely eking out a living, but as a celebrated and famous painter. 
And the next day, he pays a newspaper to write up uh, a flattering article about how awesome he is and how everyone in elite society should get him to do their portrait now, right? Do this now before he's too busy to do it. Do it before he's he's all booked up. Uh, we should probably do this for the network, by the way, because <laughs> uh, at least here in this story, it works. Uh, his first customer shows up the next day. Uh, this is a young aristocratic woman and her mother. And it is not a pleasant experience for Chartkov because he wants to paint the way that he wants to paint. But the mother has other ideas. Uh, also, the subject won't hold still all day like the models that he pays will. So it's just not a good work environment for him. But still, he, he finds that he enjoys being taken seriously by the aristocracy. And this is a really big transformation for him. And he, he finds it impossible to use his free time to carry on with his serious painting. But eventually, he does get back to work on his, his painting of Psyche. But his work on the ongoing portrait of this young aristocratic woman has infected him. And he finds himself imbuing Psyche's face with the features of this young woman. And then when she and her mother return and they see this, they are overjoyed because they think that this painting of Psyche is actually her portrait, the portrait that he's been working on. And it is awesome and they love it. And uh, we'll carry on with the consequences of this in a moment. But there's a lot, I think, to talk about in these, these few scenes. So I'll, I'll pause here. Yeah, I mean, we have moved through a huge chunk of the first half of the story just now, and there is a lot going on. First, let's briefly talk about Psyche before looking at some of what comes uh, before Tcharikov kind of gets his artistic hook into the uh, elite <laughs> class. Uh, Psyche was a very beautiful woman that Cupid fell in love with. Venus got jealous of Psyche, and in order to keep her from being killed, Zeus turned Psyche into an immortal. So this is a human who's like more beautiful than Venus, or at least Cupid thinks so. So of course, taking like a normal basic aristocratic girl or something like that. I don't know. And beautifying her along the lines of the myth of Psyche would certainly appeal to someone, namely the girl's mother, who were introduced to as having cultivated all of the right tastes required for her social position. I mean, she speaks fashionable European languages and she knows all the galleries and she's just, I don't know, she'd probably be a hoot in, in the right salon, I suppose. <laughs> but We'll see that it's this mythologizing of the elite class that really gets Tarkov going. And today, I think we call this type of art kitsch. I mean, I think because I've been typing the portrait into my search bar a lot, Facebook thinks I want portraits and <laughs> an ad for a company that like you send them a picture of your dog and they paint it in like an astronaut costume or a Shakespeare costume. And like they're selling this as like, this is the joy we need right now. And it's, that's it. This reminded me of what Tarkov is about to get up to, <laughs> um, even though it's not pictures of people's dogs. We do need joy right now. I'm not sure that is the specific form of, of the joy that we're looking for. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I'm not saying I don't think this psyche portrait is kitsch, but I think what Tarkov gets up to is it's kind of just this dead presentation uh, of uh, an idea that's repeated over and over and over again. Psyche, though, is alive in some ways, and that that's the appeal here. But by the time the girl's mother has Chartkov edit the painting, um, it's very obvious that he's kind of sold out on his original vision. I'm using terms like kitsch and animating spirit um, in 
reference to uh, a philosopher named Roger Scruton, who's a, I think a pretty good who does pretty good work on aesthetics and beauty. I'm not going to talk about his political philosophy. We'll talk a little bit about him in um, the discussion episode because I think his work on aesthetics and beauty really aligns with what's going on in this story. It's just a side note. I want to go back now to the beginning of the passage. I really like Gogol's characterization of the landlord as a worthless rent seeker whose sole pride appears to be in the fact that his tenants have an ongoing ability to pay rent and that they have some small status in society. And Gogol explains that this is actually not something that you want to build a personality a personality around, but that somehow the landlord has created a personality out of this. <laughs> so he's just a dull person. And he won't even accept the art that Tarkov has painted as payment. Um, and he, it's because the landlord finds the subjects of Tchartkov's naturalistic subjects to be boring. In other words, they're not something that appeal to the general taste of the public. They represent things that the public doesn't want to see, like this poor peasant boy. And so maybe Gogol is critiquing on some level how art becomes popular and how tastes are formed and experienced by the general public. But that doesn't mean it's great. It just means it's to the tastes of the public. Right. There's a, a real contrast here between the the work that Chartkov is doing to, to practice, which is really what the, the landlord is looking at. He's looking at Chartkov's practice pieces and is critiquing them for being boring, for, for not being commercial, for not being fashionable. And, you know, yeah, you just paint this poor person. And look, this one over here is actually just a painting of, of this room that you live in. And you didn't even bother to clean it up before you painted. It's just like got your dirty dishes and your garbage, you know, painted here. You know, what is this? Who would want this. And, you know, this just harkens back to the way that you were even describing what Gogol is up to here in the way that he is writing scenes, which is to say, Chartkov is doing the same type of painting that Gogol is doing in, in writing. That was not a sentence. Chart uh, Chartkov <laughs> is doing in painting the same type of thing that Gogol is doing in writing. That's a sentence there, uh, right? Which is to say, realism. He's interested in capturing life as it is. And uh, it turns out often there's not a lot of money in that, right? That one of the things that we we all in some way are going to art, whatever the form it is. One of the things we're going to art for is maybe to escape our harsh realities uh, a little bit, right? Which is maybe why we might prefer to see a portrait of a dog in an astronaut uniform, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I think we can read on some level this novella, especially knowing that Gogol worked on it for an additional seven years after he had it published, that he's maybe asking these questions about himself and his own writing practice in some way. You know, the question of even if you're really veering close to your original vision as an artist or writer or whatever and become popular, is that actually what you're looking for? Is the popularity what you want when you don't respect the tastes of the public? And then also, like, who made you? become tasteful? Who made you become a fad among the public? I mean, Gogol's obviously a great writer, but I think as he's living through this moment in his life, he might be thinking about these questions. But let's go back to the text here. Glenn, you pointed out that Tarkov just gets out of there. He, he, he's got to set up a new life. He's got the money to do it. And as Tarkov is thinking about how to set up his new life, it's pretty clear that at least one of his motivations 
for painting was to distract from his poverty and not some greater sense of purpose. And I know that we know the portrait has some influence on him, but I think we see that this in his character even a little bit before he buys the portrait. So Charkov buys some nice clothes, he buys some meals, but ultimately his first spending splurge is him buying positive press for himself. And again, Gogol points out that Charkov knows what he ought to do in pursuit of greatness, but Charkov is ruled by, quote, another voice inside him. So once again, we have this element of fate or of being ruled by something beyond him uh, as part of Charkov's character here. So there's some dark intervention, in other words, working against Charkov. And whether it is Charkov's own tragic flaws, because this first half of the story will turn out to be a kind of a classical tragedy, or it's supernatural is going to be something we, we get to talk about a little bit. In any event, it's absurd to buy your own positive press and then immediately <laughs> start believing it. That is just an unfortunate disposition to have as a person. And what's even more distressing is that it's become a normal marketing strategy for like every business who are able to buy sponsored articles uh, and get them in newspapers, you know, that they can write. And I assume it's typical for these businesses to believe the press that they buy or write about themselves. Uh, it's a dark path to go down, but I don't know. If you got to get your name somewhere, I guess that's one way to do it. If you've got some rubles to spare. Right. Did you see what Home and Garden said about us? Yeah, John. Uh, I wrote that. Yeah, yeah I, we paid them to print that. Yeah, that is a dark That is a dark journey. I, I don't know. Is there a Black Mirror episode about that? Uh, if not, there probably will be at some point. And, yeah. uh, well, uh, so we, we jump forward. Gogol jumps us forward a little bit in time here. In fact, the, the pacing of this bit of the novella is actually quite, oh, really, the whole thing, in fact, is, is quite interesting. The way that we, we dwell uh, for a long time, many pages on one scene, and then get uh, a lot of time passing in a single paragraph. And that's really where we are here. So, uh, Chartkov is highly successful painting portraits of aristocrats and, and also other wealthy people, and he's established a reputation for transforming people in his portraits. And, you know, he gets men who want to be Mars or, or Byron. He gets women who want to be fabled beauties from mythology or heroines from famous works of literature and, and so on. And he is really great at this. And he's rich, he's famous, and no one tries to evict him anymore. And so, you know, that is a victory of sorts, for sure. And years pass and fame no longer satisfies Chartkov, but he has become greedy, and he also then becomes fabulously wealthy. And then one day, he's called upon in his capacity as a great artist, as a famous artist, to come to the Academy of Arts and give his opinion on a new painting sent by a Russian painter who's been working in Italy. And this is actually someone Chartkov knew when they were both art students. And it is a magnificent work of art. Yet, he doesn't want to say so because he's envious and, and maybe also ashamed of himself for having wasted his talent. And he starts to give a backhanded compliment on the painting, but he ends up not even able to finish his sentence. And instead, he bursts into tears and he runs from the room. And back home, he tries to paint, to really paint, paint in the way that he hasn't for years. But he can't. His talent is gone. He's wasted it. And now he gives up painting and he spends the rest of his life and all of his riches buying up great works of art and destroying them. And in the end, Chartkov goes mad and he dies. 
And that is the end of part one. It's a classic, tragic arc in in terms of genre. We have somebody who is made to be a person of high standing in society, and then their own flaws bring them low, though uh, this is more complex simply than, than someone uh, having their own flaws bring them low. Uh, madness, ghosts, weird stuff. Those things are no strangers uh, to tragic stories. I mean, <laughs> we even get a monster in Oedipus. So, um, you know, Gogol's really knows what he's working with here. We see Charkov, though, transform into a kind of boorish tastemaker as he's living his life. And I think Gogol really adroitly describes the position that he thinks tastemakers and critics are in. Essentially, Gogol paints Charkov as one who doesn't like any work that he considers better than his own. And this is in order to protect his own reputation and standing. He's threatened by great art now. And for the vast majority of art, I think this works. But then Charkov trashes Renaissance artists like Raphael, who are in the day of Gogol, experiencing maybe the height of their popularity and um, rediscovery. But Charkov doesn't want to be compared to the greats. And so he diminishes them in the public discourse in order to control his reputation. And this is the move of a total scoundrel, of somebody who's already filled with the resentment that is going to destroy their lives. Charkov has also developed a theory of artistic genius. And what Charkov came up with is kind of similar to, I don't know, the beat generation philosophy of genius, which is essentially first thought, best thought. Uh, Charkov ridicules artists who are, he calls them true craftsmen, because true genius, he says, works quickly. It's just a brushstroke here and a brushstroke there. Uh, but what's going on here is that Charkov is both the author and core audience of his own press, which he continues to purchase to support his position in society. And also, Tchaikov has started a workshop, so he really only has to work three hours a day, and then his pupils can finish the portraits that he's started. He only creates the outlines. He only sketches the outlines of these portraits. And I mean, this is how some Renaissance and Dutch master painters worked. But Tchaikov is more like Edward Stratemeyer here, who created Nancy Drew, than he is, you know, Rembrandt or Hieronymus <laughs> Bosch. I want to look now at the, the the painter who comes in at the end of the story, the painter who has done what Charkov should have done with his windfall. I think this is the person we're going to hear about in the second half of the story, the one who narrates the second half of the tale, basically. He is the one who learned all the right lessons from the Renaissance masters and is studiously dedicated only to the classics. In other words, this other artist believes in a preposition or like a cultural notion of the idea that art elevates the soul and the highest art can edify the soul to the highest degree. And Tchaikov's resentment of this position is on full display at the end of the story. He becomes totally confronted with the reality that he blew it and that all he has left is hatred and resentment. That's all his character is. And as I said, it's a classical tragedy. He's defeated by his own flaws. He's spent the best years of his life strategizing ways to shield himself from 
truths he doesn't want to admit about his own choices and his own life and about how he took unearned rewards. And he probably is protecting himself from a growing feeling of his own sense of inadequacy. And in the discussion, we are going to talk about Christ's parable of the talents, because in many ways, this story feels like a riff on that, especially as that parable is about judgment. Um, So Tarkov has squandered every opportunity that he has been given in order to slake his own thirst for temporal or temporary approval, which is something he has to keep on buying. But now our protagonist is dead, and there's another half of the story left to go. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that threw me for a loop. We'll get there in a, in a, in a moment. I, I love the comments that you have on Chartkov here. I mean, he's he's a real sad case, right? Because it, he doesn't even get anything from having his fortune and having this acclaim. All he has is the fortune and the acclaim. And, you know, a fortune is great. I guess I would rather have a fortune than have nothing, right? You know, not ever facing the fear of being evicted, always being able to eat. I mean, those are good things in the world. Certainly they are way better than the opposite of those things. Right, but right. he, he do, but he doesn't have anything to show for it, really. He doesn't actually become a part of the aristocratic society, even though it seems like that's something that he's hoping for. He doesn't end up with a family. He's not in a community of other artists. He clearly was at one point. He was in art school and knew other artists, and that's gone now. He seemed like he you know, was a, a person in his neighborhood, this poor neighborhood that he had before he got this money. And now he doesn't even have that. All he has are employees. And so he is a man alone with his money. I mean, he's, he's you know, basically got a, a swimming pool of gold coins that he dives into. And although that's cool, I like DuckTales. Uh, I don't think that's actually <laughs> happiness, right? Well, it's happiness if you've got three uh, little duck nephews who can really <laughs> get you into trouble and, and, and bring you back to life. Yeah, Tarkov really only has employees. And this is what disturbed me about the way that Nikita disappears from the story. Charkov had an opportunity to at least help and really elevate the quality of life of one person who had done everything for Charkov so that Charkov could just focus on his art. Nikita ground the paint and he kept track of their provisions and he modeled for Charkov and we see nothing of him. I don't think that's a mistake. There is a lot of critique of kind of what wealth does to the soul in this story that is, I think, a little more on display in the second half. But Trakov is really twisted by this wealth, and he's not living up to the responsibilities that Gogol thinks a wealthy person has in society. Yes, I think that is definitely a central theme of this story. So we'll get there in the discussion, but we should forge ahead and get into part two. And as you said, Brandon, this uh, takes a very different direction now. Uh, in fact, my initial reading of the story was largely done as a uh, sort of performance for my 10-month-old son. <laughs> this is like most of my reading these days. And when I got to this point here, I mused aloud to him about where the story could be going next, given that our protagonist is dead 
yet there are still 20 pages left in this story. But hey, the story is called The Portrait. It's not called Chartkov. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow the painting. And part two takes place at an auction. It's an estate auction. It might be Chartkov's estate. We can talk about that uh, in the discussion or, you know, in the commentary here if you want, Brandon. But I'm not sure that it really matters all that much. But whoever's estate it is, the portrait is there and a bidding war ensues over it. But a voice in the audience cries out to halt the proceedings. It's a 35-year-old man, a well-known painter, and he says that he has a claim to this painting, but he's going to have to tell us a tale in order to prove it. And so here we're going to get a story within a story. And this story takes place in the St. Petersburg neighborhood called Kolumna, and it takes place in the late 18th century. So this is two or three decades ago, or you know, two or three decades previous to the story, we should say. Kolumna uh, is a neighborhood full of retirees and, and also other people of, of limited means, and almost everyone there at some point needs to borrow some money. And so a foreign moneylender sets up shop there. And, and foreign is what everyone believed about this person, but his actual ethnicity or nationality was, was hard to identify, it was hard to pin down, and it really remains a, a mystery. But he became well-known because he always had the money to lend, no matter how much you needed, and even aristocrats would come to see him. But he was also well-known for lending at terms that at first seemed really generous to the borrower, but then turned out not to be. Also, everyone who ever borrowed money from him came to a bad end. And we know from the physical description of this money lender here that he is the man in the portrait. And so we're about to get his tale, or really the tale of how he came to terrorize this neighborhood, this Columna neighborhood of St. Petersburg. I mean, part two of the portrait opens up as... Uh... Part two of the portrait begins as an almost direct parallel to part run to part one. And rather than being in like a low rent Thomas Kincaid store at the mall, which is like part one, we have this more highfalutin estate sale where the better half of society come and shop and pick up some artistic goods for cheap. I do get the sense that this is Charkov's estate sale. And that's just because of the way that he of the way that Gogol is asking us to make inferences even about the portrait so he's saying hey this is Tarkov's estate scale um but i i also think that gogol leaves that up to interpretation and you're right it doesn't really matter but if it is Tarkov's, gogol is showing us how quickly society has moved on from him because he was a fad he painted kitsch they still though society though still remembers that artist who studied in Italy. Two wealthy aristocrats are working to outbid one another on the painting. And that is when this humble painter interjects to tell a story about why the painting is rightfully his. And as we learn more about the painting, though Tchaikov's tragedy tells us a lot about it, perhaps we should consider the possibility that Gogol is putting us in a position to judge the aristocrats who would try to fight with money over a piece of art like this. And in fact, this whole opener is really critical of the new elite in Russian society. As Gogol puts it, he thinks of them as, quote, the banker who delights in millions only as numbers on paper, rather than, as we just discussed, people who like care about patronizing the arts or easing the difficulties of those in a lower class. And I, I would really love to read aloud Gogol's description of 
Kolomna and its people, uh, but I'm not going to because it's very long. <laughs> but I, I do want to point out that Gogol is describing a place in terms of its peoples and their behaviors, uh, really in economic terms. So it's he's looking at their economic status and general behaviors as a population. He's not looking at them in terms of their ideologies. And I or private beliefs or belief states or something like that. And I haven't really done a complete study of this, but it really struck me in reading this story that in a lot of contemporary fiction, places and people are are really described more by their belief states than by their economic and, and material realities. And I think it's this mode of realist fiction that we see more of this kind of characterization of place. And it's a real pleasure to read. It's almost refreshing to think about a place that is just made up by people who spend money at this shop or have this sort of concern because they're a retiree and this sort of generalizing um, rather than honing in on the specificity of a belief system that kind of makes up an inner life. I guess there's not really a lot of psychologizing, though it is maybe some anthropologizing. And it just, I don't know, this just jumped out to me as I was uh, rereading this story. Well, we are getting the the birth of the social sciences here in the the 19th century. I mean, the birth of a lot of academic disciplines, but the idea that you could have a science that would study societies and uh, what societies are like, what forces shape them, and and urban landscapes and so on is is happening in this moment that Gogol is is writing this. It's wrapped up in the Industrial Revolution, and so yeah, this is the way people are starting to think about their world and and the ways in which it's changing, the radical ways in which it's changing. But listen. Listening to you characterize what Gogol is doing here, which was spot on, also sounded like a way to characterize what Gene Wolfe does, right? Like this could have been Port Mimizan. This is how Port Mimizan is often described, Nessus as as well. I had never thought about it that way before, but I think that's one of the things that I love so much about Gene Wolfe. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Gene Wolfe has sort of mastered the habits of realist fiction and also brought in the more contemporary style of the individual, the the psychologizing of the individual. But Wolf moves in and out of both of those styles and in a sometimes confounding way that we drop the personal uh, beliefs or understandings of the individual and just get a description of the world when what we want is the subjective <laughs> experience and not the like anthropological or, uh, you know, social science one. Um, he, he kind of plays with those modes in really interesting ways. But yes, one thing I do love about Gene Wolfe is his engagement with this, this realistic fiction, this, this realist or naturalistic style. Well, we need to press on here because we're actually going to get a ton of stories. And really what happens now is that this this painter tells a series of vignettes about how borrowing money from this very strange moneylender ruined people's lives. I'm actually just going to run through them pretty succinctly and and then I'll, I'll let Brandon comment on them at, at, at greater length as he, uh, as he chooses. But first up is an aristocrat who loved using his wealth to sponsor artists, but he uh, ran out of money by doing this, but he did not want to stop. And so he borrowed some money so he could continue this practice. And after that, after he borrowed the money, he became spiteful. And all of this, by the way, all of this coincided with the French Revolution. And so he began to suspect everyone of being a revolutionary. And he wrote screeds against 
everyone, and he he became something of an embarrassment to the monarchy. And there's a, an interesting defense of monarchy in this story that will be fun to talk about. I found that really interesting. Uh, but in the end, this guy died of his own anger, and he died a, a despised man. Next up is a prince whose hereditary estates were worthless, and therefore he could not marry the woman he loved. But he borrowed funds from the moneylender, and he pretended that he had genuine wealth and not just, you know, a loan, and he married the woman. But then he became afflicted with a terrible jealousy, and he tried to stab her to death, and when he couldn't, he killed himself instead. And these two stories, these are well-known because the people involved were aristocrats, but there were other stories as well, just stories about regular people, about cabbies and sales clerks and so on. And the rumors about the moneylender grew, and people reported that his money burned, and sometimes it had weird signs on it. But perhaps what is most telling is that even though the residents of Columna often were in need of a loan, this is like the one thing we know about them, no one living there ever ever borrowed money from this moneylender, even if that meant starving to death. So those are the stories that the painter warms up with. And in a moment, we're going to get to the, the headliner, but I'll, I'll pause here. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, philosophizing and idealizing in this section. And one thing I want to point out here that we haven't yet is the way that Gogol is idealizing the role of Mecanus here, or at least making him a sort of icon that people ought to imitate. Earlier, I mentioned that bankers, you know, aren't aware of the role they're supposed to play in society with all their millions. And what Gogol is doing is pointing out that this ideal of uh, Mecanus is dead among the Russians. And the portrait is asking questions then about the role of art in society. And maybe Gogol is trying to recover this figure of, you know, the great Roman patron of the art in the fullest possible sense. So the prince, for instance, is on his way to becoming this sort of ideal of a generous patron, but is waylaid by the greed of the moneylender, who represents this new way of thinking about money, which is simply to accumulate it and not participate in culture in a meaningful sense. And boy, am I glad that we've taken writers who were concerned about these issues uh, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, seriously, and now we don't have to worry about problems like this in our culture. <laughs> Man, we can really pat ourselves on the back for heeding those warnings, <laughs> culturally speaking. Well, let's let's take a moment to think about Gogol's defense of the monarchy here. At one level, he's defending the importance of having figures worthy of admiration in power or to have those figures occupy roles of ultimate power. And this is a classic defense of monarchy as the person in charge, especially if you're thinking about like a divine right, um, is a representative of God in some sense. It's who God wants in charge. And they are to be a representative of an, of an ideal of a sort. And we also, I think, want our leaders to be representative of the best in us and to defend the best in us by creating systems or defending systems that support what's best in us. And we want to be allowed to express what's best in us freely in our culture. In other words, we want our leaders, we want to match them to an ideal. And of course, this desire can be bought cheaply, as we saw in the previous section with aristocrats hiring portraitists to paint them by representing them as various icons and mythological ideals. 
this can be done with money and not by displaying any merit or virtue. So this story, in one sense, could be read as a, as a critique of itself in that way, if we're to take the side of the painter in part two or to say that Gogol is using him to to represent Gogol's views of what ought to be. And I, and I think we can do that. So striving for ideals and virtue is good. That's not controversial. On the other hand, though, in terms of this defense of monarchy, Gogol is attacking the argument that great art is created in times of strife and revolution. And, and this really jumped out to me because I've seen articles and, and tweets and other, I don't know, internet rumblings during the pandemic and the BLM protests and, you know, the ensuing feelings of instabilities in cities that I've seen these articles promote views that basically amount to like, think of the great art we'll get out of this. And this is a really distressing thought. And maybe if we have time in the discussion, I'll want us to ask the question of whether if it came down to it, we'd prefer to have art or suffering because maybe Gogol's teasing that idea a little bit. But to return to what's happening in the story, basically, the moneylender is selling people monkey's paws. And anyone who <laughs> thinks about borrowing money from this man, anybody who thinks that borrowing money from this man will give them what they desire, isn't really thinking clearly about the relationship between money and desire, or isn't even thinking clearly that getting what you desire is a noble ideal. Uh, for a deeper discourse on this question, check out the Russian film Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. <laughs> yeah, I found this defense of, of monarchy really, really, really fascinating. I mean, for one, you know, to be clear, right, Gogol is writing in the context of uh, a, a monarchy, right? I mean, he's he really right. is actually writing, you know, only a few generations post the the French Revolution, post the, the 1790s when, when this episode he's describing is taking place. He's got a monarch. He would probably like to have the monarch as his patron. So you might as well say, nice things about the institution of monarchy and also uh, nice things about uh, how important the role of being a patron of arts and literature is for truly great monarchs, right? I mean, he's kind of asking for some money <laughs> in, <laughs> right. this, in this scene. But, you know, on the face of it, if we take it seriously, I mean, it's it's basically, you know, an argument for trickle-down economics, right? That the only way that we can ever have art in the world is uh, by there being rich people because who else could po ever possibly afford to buy art. And so this is how we get art in the world. But, you know, Star Trek uh, presents a slightly different, uh, you know, idea about this, which is uh, maybe, you know, we solve the resource problem uh, or have universal basic income. And then literally everyone can become a painter and most of us are going to suck at it, but some of us will be great and uh, we'll have a lot of painting. And yeah, this is, I think, the, the, the tension, right? This is an argument here about what are the, the social situations, the political and economic situations that create art or that are best for creating art. And this is something that in philosophy certainly goes back to the ancient Greeks who frequently did argue that strife was the thing that mattered, right? That without strife, we would not have any great art or literature or philosophy or science in our life. I'm maybe skeptical of that. And, and yeah, I hope we do take this up in the discussion. Yeah. Gogol, I think is skeptical of it too. Um, and, and we will probably be looking at that in context of the father's sort of argument, which we are getting close to. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting real close. <laughs> right. Well, it is now time for the climax of the story, which is to say the origin of the portrait. 
this narrator's father, and you know, I mean, the, the painter who is telling his story at the auction here, his father was also a painter. He was self-taught. He had no connections, uh, so other artists looked down on him. But he was extremely talented, and he was also extremely pious. And so he worked for the church. He, he painted pictures to decorate shrines and, and, and chapels and so on. And the next job that he's got to, to work on here has to include a depiction of the spirit of darkness. And he decides that he's going to use the likeness of this moneylender as the devil. Now, he doesn't even get started on this before the moneylender himself shows up at his door and wants to commission a painting, a portrait of himself. But not just any portrait. He wants a portrait that looks alive. And this is very important as the moneylender fears that he is, in fact, near death. The next day, the, the painter goes to the moneylender's house. And this house, it is super creepy. I'm not going to read any of the description here, though I would love to, because it is really awesome. Uh, but he gets to work, and he starts with the eyes, which are truly diabolical. And then he works for a second day, and then a third. But on that third day, the eyes that he's painted begin to haunt him, and he, he just can't take it anymore. And he tells the moneylender that he can't finish the job. But the moneylender begs him to finish it because he's going to live in the portrait after he dies. And already there is some essence of him in the portrait and he can feel that. But the, the painter just can't. He, he throws down his brushes and he runs home. The next day, one of the moneylender's servants arrives with the portrait and says that he is returning it and he's not going to pay for the painter's time. And then later that day, the moneylender died and now this change that we've seen in all these other stories afflicts the painter too. Once he was a kind and generous and supportive person, but now he is filled with envy and jealousy. And he's especially envious of one of his own students, a student who is sure to win a competition to have a painting hung in a church and full of a, a, a demonic rage and a demonic envy, the, the painter paints something to enter into this contest. And it is a masterpiece. It's one of the finest things he's ever painted. And everyone says so. But the priest judging the competition observes that there is no holiness in it, that the, the painting itself is, though stunning, it, it is demonic. And the painter's response to this is rage, and he trashes his workshop, he trashes his home, and he nearly beats his wife and his children. And he also makes a fire to burn the portrait. He doesn't succeed, though, because a friend intervenes and takes the portrait from him. But in any case, the portrait is gone now, and, and so too is this demonic version of himself. He, he recovers, uh, he, he apologizes, he atones for his behavior now that he's rid of the portrait. And that is almost the end of the story. There is one more bit to relate, but I think we should pause and, and deal with all of this too. Yeah, the father artist here represents a certain type of ideal. He's the true artist who carries his talent in his soul. And he is so talented that he's able to truly represent, and, and maybe that means on some level, empathize with the subject of his art. But that's exactly what gets him into trouble. The father did not paint the ideal portrait of the moneylender. He painted the true representation of him, including his evil. And he didn't daub away the flaws of the man as, as Charkov was prone to do in the first half of the story. In other words, Gogol's saying there's a kind of power here in the true representation of a subject, for better or worse, of of life as it is of realism. But it's more than that, because there's a metaphysical quality here. The ability to create a true representation of such evil 
requires that you are in a dangerous proximity to the essence of that evil. And this, I think, is what changes the father. He got too close to empathizing with this kind of real evil, and now he needs to find a way to solve his problem. And, and of course, there's irony here as well with the situation of the father not being paid by the artist, is that the artist maybe returned the painting with the magic rubles in it. But because the father recognized his work as a representation of evil, he he couldn't keep it around. And perhaps we'll want to return to this notion of the power of images in the discussion. But for now, the father needs to get away from his brush with evil. Yeah, we're very near the end of this novella here. So the the painter's friend drops by a little while later, and he says that uh, he really ought to have let him burn the portrait because having it in his possession turned him into an insomniac and made him want to stab someone. And like just in general, like anybody, it was no one specific that he had in mind. Also, he started having visions of the moneylender climbing out of the painting and walking around, and he, he couldn't take it anymore. So he gave the portrait to his nephew, and his nephew then experienced the same thing. And so his nephew also unloaded it onto someone who has also since gotten rid of it. And now he's just totally lost track of the painting. And of course, this is how it ends up in, in Chartkoff's hands. But this story makes a strong impression on the painter, who is now certain that he has been, in fact, an instrument of the devil, that he's unleashed the devil's power into the world. Right at this time, he suffers a, a terrible tragedy, the, the deaths of his wife, his daughter, and his youngest son. And he knows what has caused his suffering. He knows what is the cause of this tragedy, and he knows that he must atone. So he works just long enough to pay off his debts, and then he sends his nine-year-old son, and, and that nine-year-old son is the present narrator, he sends him to the Academy of Arts, and then he gets himself to a monastery. And at the monastery, he lives as strictly as he can. He, he will not paint, even though the abbot would actually like him to paint some new icons. And even this is not a, a strict enough penance for him, and he, he becomes a hermit in the wilderness. Uh, he, he prays, and he, he tries to cleanse his soul. And eventually he does feel clean. He returns to the monastery and he takes up his brush again. And he spends a year painting a nativity scene, uh, the, the birth of Christ. And when he is done, this nativity scene is filled with holiness. And the monks are ecstatic about it. It's, it's clear that the painter has been guided by God in this work. At the same time, the, the young painter, our, our narrator, had finished his education at the academy, and he was about to be sent to Italy for the next level of education. And before leaving Russia, he wants to visit his father. Uh, it's been 12 years at this point, big big jump in time here. Uh, his father has some advice for him, and it, it's a great speech that I, I want to just read, but uh, since I expect that this speech is going to be a big part of our discussion episode, I'll, I'll hold off. We can, <laughs> we can read it verbatim in that episode, since we're, we're close to getting to that anyway. Uh, but the gist of it is that artistic talent comes from God. It is a, a form of holiness, and it is up to the artist to remain holy and to use his talent for good. Because he didn't, because he wasn't pure when he painted the portrait of the moneylender, his work is now a force for evil in the world, and it's bringing ruin on whoever has it. And he knows that he will never see his son again once he leaves for Italy, and so he asks him for one favor, and that favor is this. If he ever finds the portrait, he must destroy it so the evil will stop. And, of course, now he has. He has found this painting here at this auction— but just as he finishes telling his story and everyone now returns their attention to the portrait itself, 
they find that it's gone. It's been stolen while everyone was preoccupied with the painter's story. And that's the end. Yes. And it's not a good thing that this portrait is out in the world. The way this story ends without the destruction of the portrait and maybe what it represents, this story has kind of moved into the realm of of fable. I think Gogol might be saying that this portrait will never be destroyed. It is too much a part of what the world is for it to ever have an not for it to never not have an appeal to someone that someone will choose to rescue the portrait over the option of having it removed from the world always every time they're going to make that choice I, I do want to briefly touch though on the conclusion and the father's transformation towards holiness and you're right that his speech will be an important maybe landmark with which we can orient ourselves in the discussion but it's the broader force of the argument that i want to make clear which is that meditating and focusing on the good will bring about more goodness and here It's a kind of individual triumph of the soul that takes place, not an overarching societal good. And Gogol has both of these things on his mind in this story. And the impact of good doesn't seem to be as immediately strong as the impact of evil in terms of a a social milieu or or a social force uh, that Gogol is writing in, or even within the text of the story. I see Gogol is writing something of the effect that it it takes an enormous amount of work for a soul to be good, but almost no work for it to slip into evil or even complacency. And so I think this is really a rather complex story with many threads that we'll need to pick up and untangle in our discussion. Yeah, this is uh, this is a jam-packed story. I predict it will be a fairly robust, fairly big d- discussion episode. And I mean, this is, I think, been a, a fairly jam-packed uh, recap episode as well. But we have come to the end of the story, and I think we. You could tell, gentle listener, that we are itching to go have some pretty big discussions about <laughs> the big themes here in this story. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and be able to vote to decide what we cover on this and, and many of our other shows, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story. Let us know what you thought of the portrait. And if you can, please do write a review on Apple Podcast. It is a huge help to us. And I really would like to do the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, So please do that if you can. Uh, Next time, we're going to be back with a discussion episode about the portrait. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.